Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Casey Hunt, and this is CNN Tonight. A new season's begun with summer unofficially over. Pressure is building on both major political parties, with the midterms now just nine weeks away. In this home stretch of 63 days, President Biden is taking the opportunity today to tout his administration's summer victories while assembling his cabinet for the first time since March. He has been coming out in full force against a GOP that is still dominated by Donald Trump and Trumpism. And we saw the ex-president fire back this weekend. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. They're all enemies of the state. He's an enemy of the state. You want to know the truth? That comes as Trump is contending with a slew of investigations picking up steam. How much will they impact his party this November? That's a big question. Season two of the January 6th hearings, meanwhile, are upon us. The House Select Committee is preparing for its end-of-the-year sprint, expected to resume public hearings sometime this month, while the Justice Department presses on with its criminal investigation into the Capitol attack. And now there's the added suspense in the classified documents probe after the search of Mar-a-Lago. The Washington Post is reporting tonight that among the highly sensitive government documents found by the FBI last month was one describing a foreign government's nuclear defense capabilities. The Washington Post's sources didn't identify the foreign government in question or say where at Mar-a-Lago the document was found. Other materials seized allegedly detail top-secret U.S. operations that are so closely guarded, only the president or someone on the cabinet level or near the cabinet level could even authorize others to know they exist. Documents about such highly classified operations apparently require special clearances on a need-to-know basis, not just a garden-variety top-secret clearance. I'm joined now by former Deputy Assistant Attorney General Elliot Williams, the former chief of staff to Trump's Homeland Security Secretary, Miles Taylor, and senior editor for the National Review, Ramesh Panuru. Welcome to all of you. Um, Miles, you have been in, in some of these top positions in government, so I want to start with you. I mean, how significant is it, in your view, that a document this sensitive was stored at a country club? Yeah, look, massively. When this <laughs> broke open, we were first talking about would the intelligence information stored there put the lives in danger of the people who collected it? Right. Then we were talking about could it put hundreds or thousands of lives in danger because it was important secrets. When we're talking about nuclear secrets, this isn't hyperbole to say we're talking about potentially the protection of millions of lives. When I was read into subjects related to this, it was at the personal approval of the Secretary of Defense. I had to go into a special facility. There was a whole range of additional permissions related to it. This is incredibly sensitive stuff. Now, let me give a quick example. Let's just, you know, hypothetically say it was a Russia or a China. That type of information about their nuclear capabilities is the type of information over years and sometimes decades we design our nuclear posture around. If that information gets out and we go to war, it may mean America not being protected 
the way it needs to. It may mean putting this country and millions of people, like I said a moment ago, in danger. Right. That's how serious this is. So what, let me just flip that analogy on its head. What if it's an ally in their nuclear program? I mean, there's a lot of speculation that say it's the Israelis. Likewise. Then we're putting a close ally and their citizens potentially in danger by exposing that information about their defenses. Again, nuclear weapons aren't just munitions on a battlefield. We're talking about existential weapons that protect a country's existence. That type of information being out there when there's only a dozen nuclear powers in the world is about as serious as it gets in the federal government. You know, Republicans have been saying, well, this was just a housekeeping issue with the documents. That's like saying the Queen of England just leaves the crown jewels lying around in the bathroom (laughs) or the basement. But the difference is that the crown jewels don't potentially put millions of lives in danger when they're out of the vault. They're they're expensive like nuclear weapons, but they they serve a much different purpose. Um, Elliot, we all, frankly, the the conversation ahead before we came on the air here was all about this story. I mean, Elliot, you're the lawyer here at the table. What did you take away from this? Well, um, I would urge every American to take a look back at that affidavit we talked so much about a week or two ago and the sections of it that talk about 18 U.S.C. 793E. Okay, right. you're going to have to fill us no, in. No, I'm going to tell you exactly. No, no, but, but look, look for those numbers, and they talk about it throughout. It's the mishandling of information that could be used to the injury of the United States. Now, okay. that's important because even if it's an ally, you are talking about national security information, the mere possession of which or mishandling of which could be a crime. Now, in that affidavit, the Justice Department lays out that they found probable cause to believe that this crime was committed, that somebody, whether it was the president or someone connected to him, had committed this crime of mishandling uh, this kind of defense-specific information. So in addition to the fact that there's a national security uh, issue here, there's also a potential criminal issue in merely having this stuff around and transmitting it to other people, mishandling it, tampering with it in some way. It's incredibly dangerous uh, for everybody. So I think there are two important points to make here. First, it wouldn't harm us to wait a day or two and see some (laughs) other reporting on this. Um, what parts of the story are corroborated, what parts are corrected, what parts are amplified. And the second is, we are, of course, going to be talking about the potential legal ramifications of this and that and that uh, part of the U.S. code that I am not going to try to repeat. Uh, but, there's <laughs> also, for, but there's also a political judgment that voters need to make about Donald Trump, who is, of course, potentially a candidate for president again. Was this a responsible treatment of U.S. information was or was it a reckless one? And I think that the I mean, bar that for deciding that, obvious. <laughs> exactly, I think the bar for deciding that is a lot lower. But now, whether often, people care, that's another question. We often skip over that question because we're going for the legal one. And right. we also have to think about, you know, as, as, as tired as everybody is of debating this question, the question of what it says about fitness for office. I want to say one more thing, though. It's, you know, look, the Washington Post is not the authority on criminal justice in the United States. I want to be clear. However, a federal judge has found probable cause that it's more likely than not that this crime was committed somewhere on those grounds. And this reporting seems to confirm that information. Now, at a certain point, it walks like a duck or talks like a duck. And I think it ought to alarm uh, everybody who reads it. Yeah, let me follow up on one thing you said, Ramesh, which is, you know, obviously we're going to let this reporting play out. I mean, we should underscore this is not CNN reporting. We are talking right now about a Washington Post story. They're the only ones that have this information right now. They had previously reported about, quote unquote, nuclear documents, right? I think there were a lot of people who assumed that they were U.S. nuclear documents, documents about our nuclear programs. Do you see a significant difference between if the president had that kind of a document versus one about a foreign country? 
I think that there are some, uh, you know, there might be different security interests involved in either case, but they're serious security interests and they're U.S. security interests regardless, no matter what. I think. Okay. Fair enough. What do you think? I, 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 there's no difference. There's, there's honestly, to me, there's no difference if it was about U.S. nuclear weapons or a foreign country. Because when you get into a nuclear war, yes. and, and and I've been in those game theory situations where you talk through tit for tat. We're to talk about crisis. that over a drink. Well, and I'm dying to know more than that. You can probably say Trump on forced TV. us into that position because he was so bellicose with his rhetoric at the beginning about North Korea. We had to have those conversations at DHS. We had to have the conversation that was, what happens if we get into a nuclear war? What do we do? And if it's about another country or our capabilities, regardless, once you're in the war, it really matters if you have that marginal advantage of a piece of informa- information about your adversaries. That getting out there is a big problem. And look, we're talking about this stuff on air right now. I mean, this, right. is, this is the horror of people like us from the national security community, is that if, if Trump hadn't taken this to Mar-a-Lago, we wouldn't be sitting here even having this discussion, potentially no putting that information at risk. Look, when he was voted out of office... The idea was he would leave and not be able to push his finger on the red button anymore. By bringing this information to Mar-a-Lago, he's basically pushing that red button. They're certainly affecting it. Um, Elliot, let me bring this back to one of the other things we've been talking about today, of course, is that the uh, judge, the Trump-appointed judge down in Florida, granted this request for a special master. The former attorney general, Bill Barr, came out and said basically that the government should appeal that decision. It was a wrong decision. But appealing it would have the effect of tying it up further and delaying the investigation. If you're the DOJ and you're trying Ooh. to prosecute this case, what do you see as the best plan? Uh, uh, I mean, there's a couple problems there. Number one, <laughs> well, here's the thing. An appeal ties it up and slows it down months, not weeks. Number two, the bigger question is that you could actually get a bad decision on appeal. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, where I was once a law clerk, is one of the most conservative courts in the country. Six of the 11 judges are Trump-appointed judges. They could get a decision that really hurts the Justice Department. And if they win there, it could go to the Supreme Court, and they get an even worse decision that could have national implications. So maybe they just roll their dice and hold on, wait, maybe they have access to the documents in a couple weeks anyway, without an appeal. It's just not always a good idea to appeal when you lose, even though it sort of, it seems counterintuitive. Well, you lost, why wouldn't you try to get it overturned? But maybe stay the course, and they might still be on top uh, in the investigation. Because look, information's coming out by day um, that seems to bolster their case. Yeah, no, very points. And Barr, although he said that there should be an appeal, was saying that even if it wasn't appealed, it would be, uh, I think he said it would be just a rain delay. A rain delay. In the game, he said it would, it would slow them down a couple innings. He used the baseball analogy. Quite so a, it's actually not a bad one. Quite a high-stakes game. All right, Miles, Elliot, thank you guys both uh, for being here to get us started tonight. Ramesh, you're sticking around with us. Coming up next here, you are going to hear from a former acting chief of staff to Trump in the White House, why Mick Mulvaney thinks that Trump had all those documents when CNN Tonight returns. Tonight's Washington Post reporting highlights the key national security questions about just what was in the 11,000 pages of government records that were found at Donald Trump's beach club. Those are answers even people who serve at the highest levels of Trump's White House are looking for. About an hour before the Washington Post story broke, I spoke with former Trump White House acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney. Sir, thanks so much for being here. Um, I want to start by simply asking you, is there any legitimate reason the former president could have for refusing to turn over classified documents? 
probably not. Um, he could make the argument that he should share in them. He might get access to them eventually. But I don't think there's any legitimate argument. If the FBI comes into your house and says, those are classified documents, you got to send them back. He's got to send them back. So I think that's that's the big issue he's dealing with here, Casey. You and I have talked about this briefly before. I think he had a, a fairly valid defense or at least a potential defense that maybe the documents sort of all just got thrown in a box as he was leaving the White House in sort of the chaos after the January 6 riots and so forth. And that might explain why they were there in the first place. But that falls apart after the FBI asks for them back a couple of times. You say you've given them back and you haven't, then they find them in your desk if that's in fact what happened. So again, that chaos, uh, inadvertent defense sort of holds water until you get further down into the process like we are now. I think the president's gonna have a difficult time explaining why some of those documents, all of those documents, that the classified documents were still in his possession after, after the FBI had asked for their return. Right. Years since he left office, months since the FBI started asking after them. And, you know, we're hearing now from former administrative administration officials, your colleagues, like Bill Barr, the former attorney general. He said this about the judge's decision to appoint a special master here. Watch. The opinion, I think, was wrong, and I think the government should appeal it. Uh, it's deeply flawed in a number of ways. The government has very strong evidence of what it really needs to determine whether charges are appropriate, which is government documents were taken, classified information was taken and not handled appropriately, and uh, they are looking into, and there's some evidence to suggest, that they were deceived. And, And none of that really relates to the content of documents. He called the decision to appoint a special master deeply flawed. Do you agree? I I don't know enough. Bill obviously knows more about this process than I do. I've never been involved with the appointment of a special master in a criminal prosecution. Most people probably haven't. But the fact that Bill Barr calls it, that certainly gets my attention. I think the one thing he said that we can probably all agree on is the fact that if the government doesn't like the decision, if the decision is really that flagrantly wrong, as Bill has suggested that it is, excuse me, Secretary Barr Uh, Attorney General Barr has suggested that it is, other legal scholars have suggested that it is, then it should be fairly easy for the government to overturn that on appeal. My guess is that's going to be what happens next. So again, as a conservative, I want the system to work. I want the institutions to work. And if this was an incorrect decision by a district court judge, the appropriate and proper next step for the FBI and the DOJ to take is to appeal this to the Court of Appeals, uh, which I think is the Fifth Circuit in Atlanta. Fair enough. So there's another former official, another former colleague, Mike Pompeo, former secretary of state. Uh, He recently in an interview said, quote, anybody who takes classified information outside of the places it's supposed to be should give that information back. Now, you've basically said in our conversation here that you agree with that. Why do you think there haven't been more 2020 Republican possible presidential contenders coming out being willing to say that? Well, you know, a a lot of them are probably running for office in some way or the other. That's a difficult position to put them in. You might think that some of them admit that they don't know enough about the circumstances. They haven't practiced criminal law, for example. But my guess is politics probably has more to do with it uh, than anything else. President Trump is still very powerful in the Republican Party. You saw, I think, that 10 people voted to impeach him and only one is coming back to Congress. So there's, there's politics certainly at play. I'm at benefit of, uh, I'm not running for office anymore. Mike Pompeo <laughs> might be, so it's very interesting for him to take that position. I think he's right, by the way. It's a, it's a common sense sort of position. Might president have sort of some defenses available to him? Maybe, but the beginning of the conversation is, 
if you have classified documents, you're not supposed to take them with you. You're not supposed to take them to your house, even if you're the former president of the United States. And if the FBI asks for them back, you got to give them back. That's the starting point for any conversation moving forward. Yeah, I agree with you that it was interesting that he said that considering his ambitions. He said in the same interview that uh, he willingly admits he's got a team in Iowa and they're not exactly there uh, by accident. So I guess we'll see. Um, but on the document front, we have seen Trump use documents, whether it's at press conferences, signing events, uh, you name it. He's used them as props. You know, we see his aides carrying boxes around. Uh, what do you make of the suggestion that he just wanted to have this stuff around? Um, it's really very interesting. He, 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 keep in mind, there's a lot more protection available to the president. There's institutional protections to the president when he is in the West Wing, when he's in the Oval Office. And that same institutional level of protection doesn't probably apply at Mar-a-Lago. I'm not too concerned about the president taking stuff that he was trying to sell. In fact, I don't think that would ever happen. Um, I'm not concerned about these things being the nuclear codes. I know that got a little bit of press early on. I think that's honestly a joke. Nobody really believes these are the nuclear codes. What's the one thing that Donald Trump might take with him or might keep even after he's asked to get him back? And stuff, for example, that might make him look good, stuff that might clear his name under that crossfire hurricane 2016 investigation into his, uh, his presidential campaign. If he thought it was good for his brand, good for his image, if it exonerated him from what he considers to be and what I consider to be the 2016 Russia hoax, that explains why he might have kept it. It's not stuff that he's going to sell. It's not stuff that benefits other countries. It's stuff that may clear his name or in his mind clears his reputation. So you think he might have taken crossfire hurricane documents to try to clear himself in some sort of future political run? Not just political. Face it, if you're him, and, and keep on, this is important for people to understand. He doesn't like the FBI. And a lot of Republicans, myself included, remember that the FBI gave false information. It's hard to say that they lied because you don't know their mental state, but they did unequivocally give false information to another court, the FISA court, back in 2015-16, when they wanted to spy on the Trump investi uh, uh, campaign. If that's the history, then the level of, of sort of trust is absolutely zero. And if the president had documents that cleared his name and the FBI said, we'd like them back, and he gives them back, is he ever going to see him again or are they going to disappear? I think that may be one of the cases, one of the points they try and make here as they go forward. Does it justify this from a legal standpoint? No. Does it maybe explain the, the facts and the circumstance? Possibly. Have you talked to people in Trump's orbit who've raised this as a possibility? No, I haven't. I'm going basically just on my knowledge of the, of the president, my understanding of how he works. Again, he, he would never do this for money. He would never do this to hurt the United States. He might do it to help himself. Do you think he might have done similar things with documents related to January 6th, or would there not have been enough of that in the White House for that to be a possibility? Yeah, that's a really good question. That's why I thought this started. That's why I was surprised when we saw the affidavit that January 6th wasn't more specifically mentioned. Maybe it was, you know, when they talk about obstruction of justice or so forth. I continue to think that if this is really just about documents, and unless they're really, really, really critical documents, the step of going into the president's home was probably it's certainly unprecedented and certainly sets a really bad precedent. Um, but I was expecting them to, to either think they were going to find something about January 6th or actually find something about January 6th. If this is really about the documents from the beginning, I will continue to be surprised by that. 
Very, very interesting. Can I ask you on the political ramifications of this? I mean, you mentioned uh, the search of his home and, and sort of the historical and political implications of that. We spent some time talking in our last conversation about the chances that more Republicans would be willing to mount a bid against him in a potential 2024 Republican primary. I mean, do you think that this search and the political fallout from it has made it harder for Republicans to run against him or easier? It's actually probably make it harder. The the pendulum swings very quickly in American politics these days. The January 6th had that pendulum sort of moving against President Trump, and you started to hear more more talk about other people possibly challenging him in, in, uh, in 2024 should he decide to run. I think this raid has actually helped him. It's garnered some sympathy. Uh, a lot of his potential challengers, Ron DeSantis, have attacked the FBI raid. I think Tim Scott has similarly as well. Even some Democrats, I think Tulsi Gabbard came out and said something negative about the FBI raid. So it has built sympathy for Donald Trump. Can the pendulum move back again the other way? Certainly it can. We're a long ways away from anybody having to make a decision. I think the one thing we have learned, Casey, in, in just the last couple of weeks is that this pressure or this anticipation that Trump might announce right away is sort of come off a little bit. I think most the conventional wisdom right now is he probably waits till after the midterm to uh, to make any sort of announcement at all. Well, and speaking of the midterms, I mean, if he were to announce and Republicans were to have a worse than expected year, he could take some blame for that. And we have seen in some of the polling, the, the broadest polling, the generic ballot, the, the president's approval rating, that things do seem to be trending Democrats' direction in a way that they weren't, say, three or four months ago. What do you think is driving that? A bunch of different things. I think it's a combination of things. And keep in mind, you're right. You, and you're exactly right to mention the generic inf- or the general inf- uh, uh, nature of that information. House races, especially, are still very, very local. So it's hard to say in a particular swing district, is Roe versus Wade a, a big issue? Is the economy still the biggest issue? Is Donald Trump an issue? It's hard to sort of dig down into those individual districts, which abortion? your point is well made. That's Roe versus Wade, yeah. The, the Roe abortion. versus Wade, yes, uh, forgive me. Exactly. So I, I think what you're seeing is a general trend for the Democrats here in the last couple of weeks. Uh, keep in mind, the Republicans don't have to do very well on that generic poll. If, they t- if they're if they even uh, in the real world, that means they're probably a little bit ahead, at least traditionally that has been the case. So I still think you're looking at a situation where the Republicans are likely to take the House. But I think that the situation in the Senate may have changed over the last couple of weeks. Again, pendulums move quickly in this business. It could come back. But the election will today be very difficult for the Republicans to take the Senate. They do move uh, indeed. Mick Mulvaney, thanks very much for your time tonight. We really appreciate you being on the program. Thanks, Casey. And we have new CNN reporting tonight about what may be the biggest challenge in the Republican Party's attempt to take back the Senate. It's campaign war chest. Coming up next, how senators are trying to work around the shortfall and a GOP family feud between two key lawmakers. We'll be right back. With just nine weeks to go until Election Day, several Senate races in key battleground states are locked in a dead heat. The top races CNN's watching, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, where Democrats are trying to win back Senate seats, and Nevada, Georgia and Arizona, where Democrats are fighting to hold on to seats. It's a surprising turn for Democrats, who just months ago feared a red wave. It also comes as the two men responsible for electing Republicans to the Senate increasingly find themselves at odds. How inconvenient. CNN's Manu Raju has new reporting tonight about how these growing tensions 
are alarming other Republican senators. Um, Manu, thanks so much for bringing us this new reporting. I know you're just running around on the Hill as senators came back for the first time since the August recess. What'd you learn? They're concerned. I mean, look, this is a committee that is central to the efforts to take back the majority. They help f- uh, fundraise the NRSC. for the Na- National Republican Senatorial Committee that Rick Scott runs. And they are not doing the job that they, the many Republicans thought they would, which is to be flushed with cash at this point in the campaign season, being able to prop up candidates at critical moments and bankroll a multi-million dollar ad campaign all across the country. You can see on your screen right there the challenges that Republicans, this committee, is having. Now on cash on hand, $23 million compared to the $54 million that Democrats have. Now, what I'm hearing behind the scenes is that Republicans are actually trying to figure out a way around the National Republican Senatorial Committee. They're trying to directly fundraise with some of these candidates themselves. And Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader who has for years been so deeply invested in how this committee operates around strategy, fundraising, instead taking matters in his own hand, raising money for his high-spending super PAC, the Senate Leadership Fund, directly urging senators to give to his committee instead because they can raise unlimited amount of money and already they are planning to prop up key candidates and races and that ordinarily it would be the National Republican Senatorial Committee's job. Right, yeah, and I think, I mean, look, you've covered this for a long time, as have I. The idea that Mitch McConnell, I mean, he had basically figureheads installed at the NRSC for many years while he ran the thing behind the scenes. I think this feud is pretty stunning to those of us who've watched it for a while. And I think we can kind of give our viewers a little bit of a sense of this because um, the, the phrase candidate quality is critical here. It's code for all of the mistakes that Mitch McConnell thinks Rick Scott has made in the course of running uh, this committee. And of course, this feud is exploding just weeks before the midterm election. So Here's what McConnell had to say about his candidates, and then we'll show you how Rick Scott hit back at the Republican leader. Watch. Candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. Right now, we have a 50-50 Senate and a 50-50 country. But I think when all is said and done this fall, we're likely to have an extremely close Senate, either our side up slightly or their side up slightly. So what McConnell is talking in code about there is candidates like Blake Masters in Arizona, a Trump-backed candidate who many Republicans on the McConnell side believe just isn't going to be able to win a general election and hasn't had the help from the committee that he should have. Rick Scott, a little while after McConnell made those comments, put this op-ed out. He wrote, quote, if you want to trash talk our candidates to help the Democrats, pipe down. Pipe down. That was stunning. And it, that, this does not happen. This is this level of feuding, especially so close to an election with two high ranking officials. It is just simply unheard of. Now, Rick Scott was in Mitch McConnell's office for the first time since writing that op-ed. He came out of the meeting. He claimed that it was not his intention to go directly after McConnell <laughs> in those remarks. He said it was actually unnamed Republican aides who were quoted in on publications. This, this is what he was referring to. Now, a source told uh, us, uh, who's close to Rick Scott, told us tonight, McConnell's comments hurt Republican candidates. Anyone who disagrees with that is either an idiot or on McConnell's 
payroll. So clearly, people close to Rick Scott believe that Mitch McConnell (laughs) is an issue here. And Casey, in talking to a number of Republican senators, they are really uneasy on this back and forth. They say it's time to get united. This kind of feuding simply is not what we need at this point. And when I tried to ask McConnell about all this, he walked in silence. I was going to say, I'm sure he had lots to say to you about that. No, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely remarkable to me. And this is one of the ways McConnell manages to keep people so loyal to him is that no matter what, he cares about the Senate. He cares about the people in the Senate. And it's clear, I think, to a lot of people, increasingly Republicans in the Senate, that Rick Scott cares about something else, namely his own presidential ambitions. All right, Manu, stick around. We're going to keep you uh, with us for our panel coming up next. We're going to take a look at the state of play right now in the battle for control of Congress, the hottest races to watch, plus new developments in the Senate contest perhaps getting the most attention coming up next. John Fetterman is either healthy and he's dodging the debates because he does not want to answer for his radical left positions or he's too sick to participate in the debate. Republican U.S. Senate candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz is keeping up his attacks against John Fetterman, his Democratic opponent in Pennsylvania. But Oz's remarks today were notably toned down from the hostile attacks his campaign launched in recent weeks, at times mocking Fetterman for his stroke. Here to discuss the state of play for this critical battleground state are Manu Raju and Ramesh Panuru. I also want to welcome Democratic strategist Maria Cardona to our conversation. Thank you guys all for being here. Uh, Manu, this is um, a notable shift in tone for Oz from the nasty statements we saw um, from his press people. Uh, But he's still on this issue. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, look. The campaign has, the aides have gone much further than Oz has gone, but Oz has not necessarily shied away from it. I do think this is an issue that Fetterman has to fully address in the final weeks here in the campaign. If he does not agree to debate Oz, that could certainly be the liability here heading into the home stretch when people, voters may have legitimate questions about his health. I mean, Fetterman was off the campaign trail for several weeks in the aftermath of the stroke. He has just come back. He's only in a handful of events. There are legitimate questions that he has to answer. The, the challenge, though, for the Oz campaign is not to go too far because then it looks like you're trying to take political advantage of someone's health. Right. Well, and they got, they got a little bit of a hand today from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Maria, who uh, wrote in an editorial, if Mr. Fetterman is not well enough to debate his opponent, that raises serious concerns about his ability to serve as a United States senator. Now, uh, obviously, the Fetterman campaign disputes that, but is it a problem for him to skip the debate? Uh, I don't think he will. I think that, look, it, it just, we just passed Labor Day. This is literally the beginning of the, you know, being in the middle and the heart of the midterm elections. I think he will get there. He still has some lingering issues, as I understand it, from the stroke. And, and I think the, the fact of the matter is, is that Oz's remarks from before his attacks, which were gross and cruel and crude, uh, backfired. They absolutely backfired on him, and they know that. And so what I think they're seeing is that Fetterman is, is ahead. There was a poll today that came out where he is not ahead by double digits, but he's still comfortably ahead outside of the margin of error. In that poll, 68% of voters said that the fact that he had a stroke wasn't an issue for them. And he's out and about. It's not like he's hiding in his house. He's talking to voters. He's at events. He's talking to the media. He had a day-long event on Labor Day. So his campaign absolutely says he is up for it. He's going to do it on his own terms, on his own time, because he's the one who is ahead. It's Oz that is desperate to debate him because he's the one who has to 
try to dig into some of that lead? Well, you know, I think the real interesting thing to me about how Oz is trying to change this conversation is that there are a lot of voters who have health problems in their own lives, Mm -hmm. right? They don't want their doctor to make fun of them. They understand that. But if Oz can put it on the territory, you know, well-trodden territory in politics Mm -hmm. of are you capable of serving or not, that's kind of a different question. But Ramesh, you know, one of the reasons why Oz is struggling here is actually has nothing to do with, I mean, Fetterman is running, I think, by all accounts, a pretty strong campaign in a swing state. Um, Oz has struggled, and he's struggling in part with Republican voters. Here's what he told uh, Brett Baer on Fox a little bit earlier tonight. Take a look. Are you a MAGA Republican? I support what President Trump has argued uh, while I was in the White House, that we can actually make America a great company if we put our country first, if we're tough on trade, if we do the kinds of uh, things that were done during that administration. So that was not a yes. <laughs> but it also wasn't a no. And that's, you know, that's the line he's trying to walk. I think that uh, you've got some lingering bad feelings because that was a very nasty Republican primary. It ended up being a much tighter primary than the one that the Democrats had. And I think that's being reflected in his worst numbers among Republicans than you'd expect. He's actually doing fine with independents in a lot of that polling, but he's not yet solidified the Republicans. If you are an optimist with the Oz campaign, what you're going to say is a lot of those Republican voters have reservations, but they are going to come home in the end to the Republican candidate. And thus the race is tighter than it looks. And it's already tightening. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's entirely possible. I mean, Manu, the other thing that happened today at this news conference is that Oz um, diverged uh, from Pat Toomey. Toomey, of course, voted to impeach uh, Trump after January 6th. He said he would not have done the same thing, but he did say that he agreed with the 2020 election results. I mean, is he trying to have that both ways? Yeah, I mean, look, he's saying that he would not vote to impeach. If he voted, say that, uh, his most powerful endorsement could come out and start attacking him, uh, Donald Trump, who just appeared at the rally with him a couple of days ago. But yeah, I mean... And he wouldn't solidify that Republican voter support. Either. Exactly. And that's been his problem all along, as Ramesh was saying, is getting Republicans in line. I think he is trying to walk that line, of course, because if you were to say he's going to overturn the electoral results, it only would open him up to just furious amount of attacks from Democrats, which he also doesn't need at this Look, point. Look, if he's struggling with Republican voters, what is he going to do when he's going to have to really close that gap with women voters? He has an issue with abortion. He said some very extreme things about abortion being a crime, about it being murder. And that is not something that he's going to be able to walk away from. And certainly the Fetterman campaign and Democrats are not going to let him walk away from that. That's going to be a huge issue in this campaign as it has been across the country. And he has to flip that back and point out that Fetterman has said there should be absolutely no restrictions on abortion. If the focus is all on the places where Republicans are out of line with public opinion and it's not at all where Democrats are out of line with public opinion, then, of course, Republicans are going to do badly. Yeah. No, I mean, and I think, too, your point about women voters in Pennsylvania. I mean, I'm from outside Philadelphia. I mean, the Philadelphia suburbs are full of, you know, congressional districts and the kind of suburban women that Republicans really lost during the Trump years have been working hard to get back Mm -hmm. and struggle with on abortion. I mean, speaking of cultural issues, Manu, I'm interested in your kind of latest reporting and take on same-sex marriage, because there is this conversation going on since we saw what happened with Dobbs. Should this be codified into law? There's a search going on for 10 Republicans to try and figure out a way uh, to make same-sex marriage legal. Uh, what is the latest on where that is, and how does that play into Democrats thinking about the midterm elections? Yeah, that's a complicated uh, decision. 
decision exactly when to have this vote because the 10 votes are not there yet. They probably will get there, it appears that way, but they're meeting tomorrow, the, the sponsors of this legislation, to try to hash out their strategy. There's some discussion about folding it into a bill to keep the government open past the end of the month. Not everybody favors that. Even the Republicans who support this don't favor that. Even some of the Democrats who favor this don't support that idea. And if they put this on the floor of the Senate, this could put some endangered Republicans in a tough spot, Ron Johnson being one of them. He indicated he could potentially support this. We'll see what he ultimately would do here. So that's part of the calculation. Anytime you get this close to the election, of course, midterm politics play into it. And that's something that Chuck Schumer will have to weigh. It's really more than play into it, right? It's, it starts to dictate everything. Yes. Yeah, no, for sure. All right, Manu Raju, Ramesh Panuru, Maria Cardona, thank you all very much for being here with us tonight. Ahead, this year's U.S. Open will, of course, be remembered as a celebration of Serena Williams' amazing, just incredible career. But time, and of course tennis, don't stand still. The rising young stars quickly making history of their own. Coming up next. We are one step closer to the finals in the U.S. Open. American Coco Gauff will not advance to the semifinals. She had a great run, but unfortunately it ended just a few moments ago when she lost to France's Caroline Garcia. We expect dramatic play at the Open, but this year we are also peering into the future to who the sport's next great players will be. On the men's side, Francis Tiafo will be playing in just his second major semifinal match after beating Rafael Nadal. It's a fairy tale. He could become the first American man to win a Grand Slam singles final in nearly two decades. Another big story in men's tennis is Nick Kyrgios, who's playing right now. He beat the defending champion to get to the semifinals. Let's talk about it all with CNN Sports analyst Christine Brennan. Uh, Christine, thank you so much uh, for being here. I mean, everyone has been or was just glued to Serena Williams, of course, um, I, I among them. Um, but her retirement here has set the stage to pass the torch on the women's side. It's, it's not so obvious on the men's side. None of the big three over there are talking about retiring. So who do you see as the, the, the next women's stars? Certainly Coco Gauff, even though she did have a tough night today. Um, she's only 18 years old, Casey. She's amazing. Mean, yeah. I mean, born in 2003 or 2004, actually. <laughs> That's when I you went know, to college. Oh yeah, right, right. And so, you know, when they're born in this century, you know they're young. Yeah. And, and, you know, she has been playing so well. And what does she say when she talks about the inspiration? It's Serena and Venus. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned Tiafo. What does he say about his inspiration to play tennis? It's Serena and Venus. Looking at someone who looked like them. Uh, you know, he felt that he that tennis would be a place where he could have a, a home uh, as opposed to other sports. And so we are seeing this. Um, I mean, there's some great players around the world. It's today's the greatest and most difficult day in tennis in terms of winning until tomorrow. Right. And and so they're coming on you know, from Estonia and, and everywhere. But I do think, you know, the common denominator here is, is Serena Williams. The first week she dominated. And the second week is about those that she inspired, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just what an amazing legacy for her to have shown uh, people who come from backgrounds that you don't think uh, traditionally necessarily lend themselves um, to playing tennis at the highest, highest levels of the sport. I mean, the story, the personal story of Francis Tiafo is just 
astonishing. I mean, tell, tell, remind us like where he came from, because it's just amazing. So his parents uh, came from Sierra Leone, and uh, his dad worked on construction of a junior tennis facility right near here in College Park, Maryland. And after they built it, he was made the custodian for the facility, and they gave him a room in the building where he and his two sons would sleep every night. And one of those sons, of course, is Francis. Their mom was working overnight as a nurse. Um, This is the American dream. It is an incredible story. So this little boy is hanging out at a tennis center all day and is learning the sport and falls in love with it, sees Serena Williams, sees that someone who has the same skin color as he has can actually be a champion and is inspired and then moves on and starts to be obviously a great player. And here he is, 24, finally coming into his own big match tomorrow. But he truly, if anything can top the Williams sisters, nothing can. And certainly nothing can top Serena. But if anything would be close, it would be Tiafo moving on because that story touches the heart, I think, of every American. Well, and he would be, I was sort of astonished to learn, it's, I think it's 19 years, the first American to get this far in the U.S. Open? Right. Well, Andy Roddick was the last one to win on the men's side. Obviously, uh, Serena has been uh, dominating. There's others as well. But uh, yes, U.S. men's tennis has had, you know, had some big names, but Certainly the glory days of U.S. men's tennis, going back to John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors, uh, Arthur Ashe all the way back, those days are long gone. Again, the, the competition around the world inspired, and many of them inspired by those great names from America or Australia, and now, of course, they're beating the American men. So I think, again, it, there is that changing of a guard feeling, um, but it's also very exciting. I mean, I think if there's anything that we love maybe almost as much as the old star is the new, <laughs> new thing. And, and here you go. You've got people all over that, that you can look at, men's and women's tennis, and the equality in men's and women's tennis. They've been paying equal prize money to the women as well as the men at the U.S. Open since 1973. So and we can we, thank Billie Jean King. We can that. absolutely thank Billie Jean King <laughs> for that. U.S. Open golf, country club sport, golf tennis. Golf has never paid the women equally. So that, I think, shows why we see such great female athletes and people from around the world trying to play the game. Yeah, it's just phenomenal. And seeing Billie Jean King King out there with Serena this week has also been uh, amazing. All right, Christine Brennan, thanks very much for being with us tonight. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. I will be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.